Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello, 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 and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. And what was it? Last November, we had Zachary Wood on the podcast. For those of you who listen to that podcast, you might recall that Zachary is the author of a memoir titled Uncensored, My Life and Uncomfortable Conversations at the Intersection of Black and White America. You might also recall that Zachary was a student at Williams College where he kind of made a name for himself as an advocate for free speech and talking across lines of difference. He was the president of Uncomfortable Learning, which sought to bring controversial, sometimes provocative speakers to campus. And he and his group actually made national headlines when the president of the university unilaterally disinvited one of the speakers that they sought to bring to campus. And for that invitation, Zachary had faced a lot of criticism on campus, some off campus, but mostly on campus, and faced some uh, social ostracization. And he writes about that in his book, Uncensored. And we talked with him about it. But it's easy for those of us who read the headlines about an event like this or to hear Zach's story to think it's like the only story at a college. But there are thousands of colleges and universities across the country, many of which have free speech controversies at one time or another. And those controversies are just one among many, many stories that are happening at these campuses. But it's hard for us in free speech world to uh, notice that because we're only looking at the headlines surrounding free speech. So we need to keep the perspective there. But I actually went to Williams College in April and I was invited by a campus group to sit on a panel to discuss free speech on campus because at Williams College, these conversations really are taking over campus. Uh, When I was there and I talk about it later in this episode, I overheard many students having conversations about free speech or political correctness. And a lot of the conversations that are happening at Williams right now are spawned from yet another controversy that happened in the fall of last year when a group of professors concerned about the climate for free speech, academic freedom, and open debate at Williams, this group of professors tried to get the Chicago Statement adopted. Now, I've talked about the Chicago Statement on this podcast before. Uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education calls it the gold standard for free speech statements on campus, and it seeks to recommit universities to the principles of free, robust, and uninhibited debate. It's a statement that's called the Chicago Statement because it was first adopted in 2015 by the University of Chicago, but has subsequently been adopted by something like 60 colleges and universities or faculty bodies across the country because it sets a guidepost for how the university should respond when there is a free speech controversy on campus. And we all know that there have been many free speech controversies on campus in recent years. This sets a guidepost of values for how the university should respond. So for example, if you're Williams College and you're Zachary Wood and you're inviting a speaker to campus and you're the administration, you're deciding how to respond to that speaker, whether to disinvite them or not disinvite them or hold alternative programming, uh, this statement would hopefully guide the way to the response. It's a liberal statement in the classical sense insofar as it's ve- it allows for very robust uh, free speech and 
it allows for students and faculty members to invite controversial, sometimes provocative speakers to campus. But for trying to adopt this statement of principles at Williams College, a group of students uh, lobbed criticism at the faculty members. Uh, hundreds of students signed a petition in which they urged the college to reject the reckless and dangerous policies that the Chicago statement would support. Uh, they say these policies imperil marginalized students and amount to discursive violence. And I'm quoting the student petition there. So the students organized in opposition to the Chicago statements at Williams. And a lot of they actually didn't haven't ended up adopting the Chicago statement. As a result, uh, some of the students took over faculty meetings and the president of the university decided to form a commission in which they would determine how they would respond to uncomfortable, controversial, provocative speakers who are invited to campus rather than using the Chicago statement. We haven't gotten those principles from that commission yet. Uh, but like I said, it's overtaken the debate and discussion at the college. And there perhaps has been no more vocal supporter of the Chicago statement than Professor Luana Morosia, who's an evolutionary biologist at the school. And she really takes on head on the arguments that the students are making against the principles, primarily the argument that allowing for controversial or provocative speakers to appear on campus, rejecting the idea that this is discursive violence. She wrote an op-ed in the Williams Record on May 1st, in which it's titled, Refuting Claims of Institutional Violence, Analyzing Evidence of Racism at the College. She argues that in the end, one can only find evidence of violence when the meaning of the word violence is changed. Violence is now taken to characterize words or acts that might offend someone, even if unintentionally. But she asks whose offense counts. She goes on to say that this claim that words are violence is another form of intimidation. Change the meaning of words to stifle speech you don't like, she says. But she goes on to say American courts have ruled that offensive words or actions, so long as they don't inspire imminent harm, are not violations of the First Amendment's free speech. And as my aside here, uh, the First Amendment doesn't apply to college like Williams, but the First Amendment, in a sense, is a set of values, uh, a set of guiding principles for a liberal society like the United States. And you know, we at FIRE believe that First Amendment standards should guide on college and university campuses that should be the marketplace of ideas. But anyway, she continues in her op-ed. She said there's a huge difference between offending someone's sentiments and punching them in the face. You can control how you react to speech, but you can't will your face to not be hurt. We've talked on this podcast myriad times about the distinction between words and violence. What separates a civilized society from an uncivilized society is that we allow for people to settle their differences using words, but punish those who try and settle those differences using violence or coercion, but there's been an increasing illiberal trend on and off campus in which the conflation of words and violence is being made. I think it was Sigmund Freud who once said that civilization began the day a man cast a word instead of a stone. We leave our weapons at the door in a liberal society. So we need to be very careful when we claim that something is violence because we punish violence in these sorts of societies, but we allow debate and discussion and words to take its place. And we've seen from students or faculty members or members of the general public who believe that words are violence, we've seen some of these people use coercion to prevent these words from being spoken. In the college campus context, we've seen, for example, a heckler spray an unknown chemical substance at a speaker at what was it, the University of Missouri, Kansas City, 
We've seen students pile chairs at Beloit College in Wisconsin to prevent a speaker from speaking, pile chairs on top of the lecture stage. We've seen a heckler use a cowbell at Portland State University to prevent a speaker from speaking. We've seen fire alarms pulled at UArts when Camille Paglia tries to give a speech. We've seen good old-fashioned stage occupations at Harvard University. So the use of coercion, often justified by claims that words are violence, to shut down speech and debate. And this is worrisome. And it's something that we actually have seen at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education and been concerned about for many years. Those of you who follow our work closely might recall that our president and CEO, Greg Lukianoff, co-wrote an article with Jonathan Haidt, the NYU professor, in July of 2017. And that article was entitled, Why It's a Bad Idea to Tell Students Words Are Violence. The subtitle is, A Claim Increasingly Heard on Campus Will Make Students More Anxious and More Willing to Justify Physical Harm. We've seen physical harm, of course, at the University of California, Berkeley, in February of 2017. We've seen physical harm attacks at Middlebury College when uh, Charles Murray was set to speak there and a professor was sent to the hospital for a neck injury. But Professor Luana Morosia is one of the courageous faculty members at Williams College who is outspoken against this creeping rhetoric of violence and its conflation with speech. And so we had her on the podcast. I spoke with her, what was it, May 15th? We spoke over the internet. So if this conversation sounds like it occurred over the internet, that's because it actually did. And I tried to talk with her, get a sense for why she is so outspoken in defense of free speech. Where did that come from? Uh, we also discussed the situation, of course, at Williams and the events that are unfolding. And we discuss what it means to take a courageous stand in defense of free speech. You know, a lot of these professors are afraid to speak up because they've got jobs that are on the line. They've got mortgages, of course, careers. So I ask her why she <laughs> seemingly doesn't care about any of those things. So I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do. And without further ado, I present to you Professor Luana Morosia. Okay, Professor Morosia, thanks for coming on the show today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. You're a biology professor, correct? Correct. An evolutionary biologist. And what got you interested in that? Um, well... I always had a passion for biology. I really never considered any other path other than biology, so hard to say. I grew up in a place that was being rapidly ruined by um, the growth of cities, and nature disappeared very quick. Were you, were you near some of the famous Brazilian rainforests, or were you in one of the big cities? Yeah, I was, uh, well, both. I was, in, I was born in Rio, Rio de Janeiro, um, which is in a Brazilian rainforest, which now has less than 1% of its original um, expansion. Uh, it's uh, the Atlantic rainforest, um, very rich in biodiversity, and now very little of it is left. So it sounds like the, uh, the environmental situation in Brazil uh, prompted your interest in this career, but you have an interest now in free speech, in particular at Williams College. And if I, if I recall correctly, that interest also kind of comes from your experience in Brazil growing under a dictatorship, right? Correct. So I was born at the peak of the dictatorship in 1976. Um, a lot of my family, um, a lot of my family members were communists at the time. 
there were lots of family friends that disappeared. There were uh, had a cousin that had to leave the country for a long time until dictature was over. Um, so yeah, difficult times. My my father actually had to burn all his Marxist books. And so your family didn't feel safe speaking out in a culture like this. No, nobody did. Um, nobody did. So the, it, the, the political life of Brazil was completely suppressed. And I would say that to this date, uh, it hasn't been fully regained. You can see what's happening in Brazil. And did you come to America in part to escape that? Well, and also to get a better education. So I, I, I became uh, very interested in science and I fully realized that uh, science here was at another level. So um, I decided to come to grad school in the U.S. and then I never left. Were you shocked by the amount of political freedom you had in the United States? Or while you were growing up in Brazil, did you always sort of knew that this sort of political freedom would exist in the United States? Um, it's a good question. I sort of knew that things were much more open here, but... Uh, yeah, and I think it's something that, that I realized slowly wasn't a sudden realization. So, And where did you get your, uh, your degrees from before coming to Williams? So my undergraduate degree and my master's degree I got at, uh, in Brazil at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. Uh, and then I came to Cornell uh, University where I got my PhD. I also did a postdoc. Um, and uh, in, uh, in the UK at the University of Cambridge and um, another postdoc at the Smithsonian Institute in Panama. There's a lot of talk now about free speech and academic freedom on college campuses, also political correctness, which is kind of tangentially related to that. When you were at Cornell, did you have any concerns about these issues? No, it wasn't as obvious. So in Cornell, there was a lot of speech going on that I actually um, didn't like, and that was the, the rise of the intelligent design group, and they were very active in Cornell. There were several uh, invited speakers uh, denying um, evolution, uh, straight creationists, and I would go to all these talks, and uh, that's, that's one thing I gained a lot from those debates is learning the opponent's arguments so that you can, you can better your own arguments. So that's one example of how a speech that I consider hateful, if you will, um, could actually teach me a lot of stuff. And when did you go to Williams? Uh, I came to Williams in 2010. So I visited Williams for the first time early last month and got the opportunity to meet you, of course. Mm -hmm. And I had been reading in headlines across the country about free speech controversies at Williams College dating back to... Zach Wood, who uh, was the head of Uncomfortable Learning, a campus group at Williams for a time that sought to bring controversial speakers to campus for dialogue. And there was an incident where the president of the university, Falk, uh, unilaterally disinvited one of his speakers and uh, started generating headlines as a result. Uh, and then there's been a couple of more recent campus controversies, which I'd prefer you talk about because uh, you know them better than I do. But I arrived in campus thinking that I work on campus free speech issues every day. Uh, when I get up in the morning, some of the first headlines I read are about headlines about campus free speech issues. So it's very easy for me to get spotlight syndrome and think like the most important thing happening on any campus at any one time is the free speech thing. 
Uh, so when I go to campuses, which I do quite regularly, I often need to take a deep breath and say, this is a campus where there's a lot of other things going on. Free speech is probably only a very minor concern of the campus and doesn't take over the dialogue and the conversation in the way that I might think it does from afar. Mm -hmm. And then I arrived at Williams and within my first hour of walking around campus, I heard one group of people talking about free speech and I overheard a second group of people talking about political correctness. And I'm like, hmm, this is odd. This is, hasn't happened to me before. <laughs> and then I finally got together and met some students and they relayed to me how this debate over free speech and what speakers can be invited to campus is kind of all-consuming at Williams. The debate over uh, safety and whether uh, physical safety is different from psychological safety and bringing certain speakers to campus can actually be considered violence in some cases. And students were telling me that when they came to Williams, they weren't anticipating an environment like this. They were anticipating a liberal arts education where there's a grappling of ideas, no matter how controversial or offensive to some. And the environment now on campus is one of almost complete self-censorship if it deviates from the prevailing campus orthodoxy. And it just sounded like one of the most stultifying environments that I've ever experienced visiting the dozens, if not hundreds, of campuses that I've visited across uh, the country over the years. So I wanted to pitch it to you, see if you can kind of tell me the story of what's happening at Williams. Is my impression of my visit there off base, or is it really that stultifying right now, that entrenched? Um, this semester has definitely been rough. A number of us professors got concerned about um, this push for censorship that we started sensing among students. Um, for me, the realization came when, uh, we, during a talk when Reza Zlan, uh came to campus and he said during his talk, the talk, the talk was entitled The Future of Free Speech. And uh, Reza Zlan said that um, colleges should write rules on stone on who can and cannot speak in campus uh, and the students stood up and applause that. Uh, one student asked who is to decide on the rules, and uh, Reza Islam answered that the college should decide on the rules, and again, applause, standing applause. Um, and uh, that was concerning for me. Uh, he, he ended up saying that only factual talks can happen in campus, so opinions cannot be expressed, only factual talks. And again, a standing ovation from students. So that was incredibly concerning to me once we all walked out of that talk. Uh, a number of us professors got together and we decided that it was time that we adopted the, the Chicago principles um, uh, of uh, free expression in campus. Um, we sent a petition around and to our surprise, about half of the professors signed the petition within days, which is a great a great response. I mean, right now I haven't seen a response as, as great as that. We had a couple of days scheduled for discussion. Um, the students uh, heard about this. I don't know who told them about it. We were not voting. We were just discussing uh, what the principles meant and uh, what did it mean to adopt the principles. As you know, many institutions have now adopted it. So I heard from college council that the students were planning on breaking into our meeting. I emailed the students. I explained we were not voting, but they still came. Uh, they had signs saying free speech harms 
and they disrupted the meeting throughout. They were saying we wanted to kill them with hate speech. I explained that um, nobody had an intention of inviting Derbyshire, is what they thought. They thought we wanted to invite Derbyshire back. I explained that this is not the intention, that this is not why we need it. And uh, that was it. We then had a second meeting that went well. President Maud Mandel then uh, created a committee to come up with rules for free speech at the college. Um, this committee has not reported yet, but they are working in it, into it, and I'm hoping that the results will be good, so keep my hopes high. Um, and then th th that was it for the fall, and then in the early spring, two professors did not come for their teaching. One warned in advance, went on a medical leave. The other one quit the day that uh, classes were starting. And uh, that second one said that she was quitting because of violent practices, violent racist practices at the college. She just sent an email to students, uh, did not show up to class. Without knowing the circumstances of the medical leave or anything, the students uh, fully believed them and started this this big campaign of protection to these professors. Uh, they put a shrine in, uh, in their building and they blocked the corridor with newspapers and objects, um, which were clearly a violation of the fire code because they were blocking passage. Another professor uh, removed some of these objects um, and uh, in consultation with the fire marshal and campus security, um, the students got very upset with that and said that the professor was disrupting their freedom of expression. And then, basically, this professor got accused of a number of things, but um, the freedom of expression was one of the main things, and the students didn't realize that blocking the corridor um, and, and disrupting the fire code is not freedom of expression, right? The fire code is content neutral. It cannot yeah. <laughs> work for some content, but not others. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. So the argument from the one professor who took leave or quit uh, that they needed to leave because of the college's violent practices uh, is something that you wrote in a recent article uh, deserves investigation. I mean, to the extent that violence is happening anywhere, this is something that we would presumably want to be very concerned about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, so if these, if these claims have a basis, we all need to know what's going on so we can remediate and we can fix it because these are very serious accusations. I frankly have not seen um, violence in campus, much less racist violent practices uh, institutionalized. Uh, so that is, I think that the college is immensely supportive to the professors of color, the students of color, to diversity. Um, we have a, a very large number of diverse students and professors in campus. It has been a top priority to hire uh, diverse professors. Um, there is no evidence whatsoever, despite what this group has been claiming, there is no evidence that professors of color leave the college more often than white professors. In fact, if anything, there is no significant difference between the two groups. And if anything, professors of color are retained at a slightly higher rate. So I don't see evidence. Um, there were several meetings scheduled after this event to discuss the climate at the college for professors of color and, 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 and other groups. Um, in one of these meetings, I asked, we need to know what is the violence that is happening in campus. And I was told by... Uh, another professor that even asking 
what is the violence is a violent act. Uh, so basically, you cannot discuss anything. You just have to take everything at face value. And of course, there are problems with that. Serious claims need serious evidence, right? Yeah, it almost becomes unfalsifiable at that point to claim something is violence, but then to refuse to allow people to examine those claims and to argue that the mere examination of those claims is itself violence is a perfect rhetorical for- fortress that you're building for yourself against any evidence to the contrary. And it shuts down dialogue and debate and rhetoric. And in this case, to the extent that you do get any information about what actually is violence, uh, it isn't the sort of violence that the standard American or non-American would consider violent. It's a misplaced remark here or there. It's an experience at a car mechanic off campus. But it's not like anyone is throwing fisticuffs Mm -hmm. or uh, anything of that nature. How is this rhetoric surrounding what is or isn't violence manifesting itself in the classroom and outside the classroom? Do you feel as though Williams is a place where you can have debate and discussion now, or is it so overcome by this these accusations of violence that people are afraid to merely uh, speak their mind? I think people are very afraid. I mean, I think professors in particular... And many students, um, I have had since since I uh, wrote the op-eds, I have had a number of students that came to me. I have had secret meetings with groups of students that do not want to be identified. So I think that there is definitely a fear of even questioning uh, or even asking questions about what exactly is the experience. I mean, we, there were several op-eds and the uh, editorial uh, front page things in the student newspaper. Um, Saying that the violence is 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 called violence, it's microaggressions, it's as you mentioned, uh, a lot of the events that I was given as um, an example of the institutionalized violence in the college actually took place in other cities, as as you pointed out, um, in the neighboring cities, and it involves things like asking about a dress or um, asking where you're from when they detect your accent. Um, and definitely those things are very common. I, I experienced them several times. And, you know, and occasionally you do get a comment from a student, uh, anonymous comment in the student evaluation forms um, that is hurtful. Like, uh, well, you can't uh, talk in English. Why don't you ask your senior colleagues to write exams for you? That's one of the things I got. Um, but I don't blame the college for that. You know, to say that the college is responsible for the misbehavior of a few students is I can't I can't I can't say those things, you know. And I and I have not encountered professors that were that mistreated students based on race or, or any other attribute. So, do you feel as though that there is a minority of students who are setting the culture on the campus, and they're doing so because they're using rhetoric that no one really wants to argue against? Yes. Uh, they'll call you racist. They'll call you sexist. They'll, if you disagree with them, they'll call your language violence. And no one wants to be labeled a racist, a sexist. No one wants to be called uh, the purveyor of violence. Uh, no one. And they'll also these people will also claim psychological trauma mm-hmm. if you don't validate their experiences. Mm-hmm. So no one wants to be seen as the person who induces trauma on someone. And as a result, wielding these rhetorical tools, 
they can shut down almost any debate and make anyone who disagrees with them cower or fear um, that speaking up is going to make them, you know, a quote, violent person or a person unsympathetic to the concerns of the marginalized. Exactly. So this is this is exactly, I think it's very few students and very few professors. There's definitely um, some some professors and some students that are, that are doing that. Um, and then there are some people that will side with them uh, and basically be signaling virtue. You know, I, I defend, uh, I, I'm anti-racist and I'm on your side and, and all these things. Uh, and, it, and then there is a number of people that are very afraid of uh, questioning anything because, as you mentioned, they, nobody wants to be called a racist. This is, this is a serious accusation. Uh, the same goes for students. And uh, I know from hearing from a lot of students that the strategy that this relatively small group of students are using is going to Facebook and saying things, if you are against racism, sign this petition. So that's how that petition that they initially wrote against free speech got 300 signatures or something. Um, whole sports teams were emailed saying, if you don't sign that, you are a racist, or if you are anti-racist, sign this. And and everybody signs without even paying much attention to what they're signing, right? We should uh, lay out Williams College for our listeners who haven't been there. It's a very small college. Uh, I'm in Washington, D.C. In order to visit it, I f- had to fly to Albany, New York, and then dr- rent a car and drive about an hour uh, through the mountains or the foothills of the mountains uh, to get to Williams College, uh, which is a v- in a very small community of Williamstown. And it seems to me that everyone knows everyone else. And I've heard from students that if you are one of the people that speaks out against this rising illiberal culture at Williams, or you are one who gets branded at Williams, heads turn. People know who you are. Uh, you're, if you're in the cafeteria or if you're in the uh, student center, uh, people know who you are. Zach Wood, uh, who's been on this podcast before, has talked about the experience of feeling like uh, an ostracized person on campus. What has your experience been like? Because you are, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems at least from the outside that you are one of the few professors that has been vocal in opposition to this rising illiberalism at Williams, though I've heard through whispered voices and emails that there are others like you who feel the same way but are just afraid to speak up. Right, right. So I have definitely gotten a lot of emails since I um, wrote the pieces. Um, a couple of emails have been anonymous, not threats, but intimidations, like you must apologize, you must remove your op-eds, things like that, which uh, they do by CCing all the administrators, president, etc. Um, and I also got a lot of support emails from students saying, mainly students, also a few professors and uh, several administrators saying, thank you so much for speaking out. We all feel like you. Um, thank you so much. So, you know, I got, I, I would say that I got more support than I got <laughs> hate speech, hate, hate email. <laughs> um, but definitely I, I do feel um, that I'm more visible now as I walk through campus. You know, I, I know that students sometimes turn their heads when I pass and, you know, you don't know if they are on my side or not. <laughs> so, 
are there other professors that you are seeing now feel a little bit more emboldened to speak up? I always recognize that speaking up in a culture like this brings about its own risks. I mean, uh, we're all adults. We all have responsibilities in life. We've seen what students have been able to do the lot to the lives of professors on other campuses. We have mortgages and families to worry about. Um, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to be able to speak up in defense of freedom or free speech. Uh, are there other professors that are there with you vocally? Uh, there are definitely many professors that are there with me. Um, I, and I do think that the fact that we are starting to write things and say things is making people a little more willing to talk. The college has started by organizing only meetings for professors of course, but, that, but then they broadened that to all professors. And I know that during these meetings, um, Professors did speak out of how they were afraid and that they feel, felt like they didn't have a voice. And those are tenured, tenured professors, right? So um, I, I do think that people are starting to see a problem and that they want to they wanna participate and, 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 and solve this problem. And what about the administration to the extent you're willing to talk about them? It seems as though they want to have it. They want to please everyone. And by trying to please everyone, they're pleasing no one. I, I saw a leadership vacuum when I was at Williams, one that tried to be sympathetic to the students, but also sympathetic to the free speech argument. And one of the things that other colleges and universities are doing so that their goalposts are most clearly defined is adopt the Chicago statement so that when campus controversies surrounding free speech do happen, they have these statements of principles that say, this is what the college believes, this is what we signed on for, and this is what we value so that you don't get this uh, mealy-mouthed email or this mealy-mouthed statement. Yeah, no, the administration is definitely being pulled on all sides. On one side, you have very vocal students who are continuously talking to MOD and talking to administrators about, um, uh, and they, they are against, they're in favor of censorship. Um, and then you have alums that are not in favor of censorship and are also being vocal and professors so they're being pulled on all sides, and uh, th there is a desire to please everybody, but as, as you pointed out, it's impossible. Maud did express early on that she would love to adopt the Chicago principle so that she doesn't have to take decisions when a, a, a controversial speaker comes to campus. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I do hope that we come up with either with our own version of the, uh, of the Chicago statement or, or adopt the Chicago statement. Um, so we'll see. There's another controversy happening right now. So we've already talked about the uncomfortable learning controversy surrounding uh, Zach Wood and the group's decision to invite John Derbyshire, who has uh, been called a racist, uh, and then the president, Adam Falk, disinviting him unilaterally. We've talked about your efforts to get the Chicago Statement at Williams College, and then we've also talked about the debate surrounding these two professors' decisions to leave and uh, the speech, which they call violence, that was a contributing factor in their minds to their leaving. But right now, uh, you can read in the headlines about the student government's decision to not recognize a student group, a pro-Israel student group, I believe it's called the Williams Initiative for Israel, based more or less on the student government's dislike of Israel and pro-Israel advocacy. Yep. The administration, it appears, has stepped in to allow for them 
to still have access to certain campus resources, though it's unclear if they'll have access to student fees. Talk to me a little bit about what the feeling is like on campus right now surrounding that debate. Um, I think that's very controversial. Um, I've talked to a couple of people in the college council themselves, and they, they this particular person I talked voted in favor and was, you know, she immediately realized how that would backfire. And it's this, again, this desire of protecting groups that they perceive as the most marginalized groups. So in this case... Like the Palestinians. Yeah, Palestinians would be the, the protected group. You know, and a, a lot of, of uh, hateful things were said against Israelis and and the group of students that, that wasn't even recorded, to my knowledge, um, in the college council. So there is definitely an issue there, and I and. and and Maud has since actually uh, stated that the the group will have all the benefits. Oh, good. So the the statement ratified and saying that the group will have all all of the benefits. So that was very good. I do not know if Maud has the uh, uh, the power of asking College Council to revolt on the issue or not. I don't think that has been done. But perhaps because the College Council is an independent organization from the administration, so. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. We're coming to the end of the semester, I'm presuming, if you're on semester systems. When do students generally go home for the summer? Uh, this Sunday is the, the last exams are either Sunday or Monday. So soon, they're, they're starting to leave now. And is there a hope that with the summer will come sort of a reset, tensions will die down, and that next semester perhaps will be better? What do you think the future holds? Uh, there is definitely a big hope for that. <laughs> I think all the professors are hoping for a calm summer and uh, hopefully that things don't get quite reset in the uh, in the fall. A lot of the students that are very vocal are actually graduating and leaving campus. Um, of course, there are many who remain here, so we'll see what waits for us. And as far as the rewriting of the speaker's policy that the president set up that committee to draft, any word on when that new policy will go into effect and whether it'll be speech protective or not? Um, we haven't heard back yet. It should be by now, like sometime in May, that they're going to report back. Their charge was limited, so I'm not sure that they will come up with a full rule or, or a new, or some version of the Chicago statement. I don't think so. I think they will come up with recommendations of what would be best for the college to do. Gotcha. All right. Well, any parting thoughts here, Professor Morosia, on uh, what you've been seeing or what you hope to see moving forward? Well, I hope to see reason winning this and, and more free speech and more ability for us to discuss topics without being afraid of speaking out. So we'll hope for it. All right. Well, very good. It was very nice meeting you when I was at Williams uh, in April. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, thank you so much. That was Williams College professor Luana Morosia. To learn more about her work, her writing about free speech and the situation at Williams, you can check out the show notes in the description to this podcast where I have some links to uh, more information about some of the things that we discussed today. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So to Speak by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback. We'd like to hear feedback. 
email address is so to speak at the fire.org. And we also like reviews. If you liked this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. As I tell you often, reviews help us attract new listeners to this show. And until next time, I'll be out on vacation, but I should be back in two weeks with the next show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.